Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us. That you would open our eyes and ears to your truth. That you would teach us. That Christ would be lifted up and magnified. That as your word is read and preached, that the Spirit would go forth and teach us. That the, the mouth and words of your servant would be guarded. That he would be forgotten. That Christ would be magnified. Lord, we ask that you would minister to us through your means of grace. Lord, you would encourage us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 19 through 31. And I'll remind you that Acts is, is written to um, confirm the certainty that Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 9, Make a note on where we've read in in Genesis, our continual reading this morning, singing Psalm 51, the confession of sin. All these things are are heavy at times, but it is reality. We live in in a hard world, a fallen world, one where sin is around us, impacts us, one where we commit sins, and yet we're reminded. We're reminded of God's goodness and His grace, even as we confessed our sin. We heard God's pardon and assurance of it from his word. Even as we sang the psalm, we were reminded of God's tender care, the grace that he pours out upon his people. And even in the, when he disciplines us, even in the sufferings of life, these things are for our good, for his glory, preparation for heaven. And we're reminded in all things that Christ is worth it. He is worth it. Let's turn our attention to God's word this morning. Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in the second half of verse 19 and, and read from there. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. One of our former presidents, uh, one that uh, is before all of our our days, uh, but one that uh, you probably learned about children in school and uh, adults, perhaps maybe you read biographies about, uh, did many, many things that are of renown, things to be thankful for, perhaps maybe even things we would uh, ask and wonder why God allowed, but but either way, it's recorded that, uh, that President Theodore Roosevelt uh, said or wrote these, these words uh, as he looked at life, as he considered it. This is what he, he wrote. Nothing in the world is worth having or, or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. I've never in my life invited a a human being who led an easy life. I've envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. It's an interesting thing to say. An interesting observation. Now, I think you probably agree with me uh, that we we might want to tweak it a little bit. Wouldn't wouldn't say that this is exactly... proverb we'd want to live by. But as, as God's people, uh, we look at the reality of the world and, and his word as he's revealed it. And I, and I think we might tweak it this way. And so we would want to say that, that there, is, there is no effort, pain, or difficulty that is not worth suffering for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed us. You cannot but pity a person who lives a a seemingly easy life outside of faith in Christ. But we must all thank God for his people who lead difficult lives and live them well for the glory of our triune God as the Spirit works to the glory of our Savior. Amen. I think maybe it was a little bit better of a tweak, a little bit more biblical, a little bit more reality. Hopefully makes the same impact. And, and as we look at our passage, uh, we see some of that truth on display. And I hope you'll, you'll keep in mind, you'll remember, and, and you'll see as we move our way through, that, that God gives his people love for him and compassion towards the lost that overcomes all opposition. And we're going to look at three simple things this morning from this passage. Preaching, plotting, persecution. So preaching. First thing we come to is Paul preaching the gospel in Damascus. Now again, I'm probably going to say Paul over and over again. At this point, Saul is still being used, but we know that this is this is Paul, and that's how we know him. But, but Paul, or, or Saul, uh, before 
Christ confronted him on his way to Damascus, before Christ utterly stopped him in his tracks, redeemed him, gave him a heart of flesh, replacing that heart of stone, removing his his anger and hatred for the church and her Lord and giving him a, a heart that loved now Christ. Saul, on his way, was was headed to Damascus. And he was headed with a commission from the high priest that he had sought out. And and it was a commission that he might go find all those who are following this new way. Find all those who were, in his mind, levying. They're coming in. They're they're messing up. They're they're beginning to spread this, this new, horrible heretical view he's going to stamp it out he's going to root it out he's going to do all these things so you can imagine the synagogues who knew as we read there they knew he was coming for that purpose they'd heard of what he had done in jerusalem seeking to to bring an end to this fledgling movement this way as it was called those who were following jesus the the rabbi who had turned Israel upside down. Paul comes in and you might imagine maybe the shock, uh, perhaps the bewilderment of the Jewish people who were waiting to hear him bring this commission from the high priest. And yet what they get is Paul on a commission from the high priest the Lord Jesus Christ, that he comes in and begins to to boldly open up the Scriptures. And from the Scriptures, what he once sought to destroy and refute, he then proves by the power of the Spirit. So now, the Holy Spirit's using Paul to turn these synagogues upside down, to even turn Damascus upside down as he is proclaiming beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one that you must repent of your sins and turn to in faith. He is salvation. Again, the exact opposite of what he had been proclaiming and seeking bring about. And, you know, Paul, as we read earlier, I know it's, it's been a few weeks since we were in Acts, but, but, but as we read earlier, his conversion as, as the Lord confronted him and the, and the Spirit gives him new life and he goes through these things. And, you know, one could imagine that Paul might come out of this and think, I, I, I need to take a few steps back and collect myself. Uh, my whole world has just been turned upside down. I mean, you remember who Paul is. I mean, Saul was. I mean, he was, to some extent, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, the other day I was at a, a track meet and, and someone pointed out and said, do you see that young man over there? That, that young man led, last year, the nation, led the nation in, in rushing yards. This high schooler. And then just up the street here at Powell, there was, I think, one of the number one heavily recruited high school football players in the nation. I mean, people were talking about, people were knowing about. Well, well, it, it seems strange to us to say this, but, but Saul would have been even, even more well-known 
that he was, he was on the fast track. He was like the top pick to be brought into the service of the high priest, perhaps even working his way up. He was at his young age already accomplishing things far beyond understanding of the scriptures, teaching it. He, he, had, he had already accomplished these things, been taught. He, he was carrying all the right letters behind his name. He was, he was well known. So when this happens, one might think there'd be a temptation to, to maybe just I need to, I need to draw back and figure out what I'm going to do with my life now. Um, I was just trying to get these folks and arrest them, and now I am one who I was seeking to arrest. What do I do? And, and yet what we see, though, is Paul, he doesn't do this. He, he gets the Lord looking after him, taking care of him, but what we see quickly is his love for Christ compels him to proclaim the truth compels him to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. And then we'll see as we move on too that the love, the love of his fellow countrymen and the love of his neighbors compels him in the face of all opposition to tell them who Christ is. And to explain the gospel and the, the free offer that's there and the forgiveness of their sins in Christ if they would just receive it. You know, like, like Paul, that's perhaps, perhaps you and I don't have as, you know, perhaps you don't have as dramatic of an experience as that. I mean, I can't put myself on the same level as, as Paul was at in thinking of such a radical change, such opposition. But it is, we have the same things that, that drive us as Christians. What drives us is the glory of God, our love for the Lord. What drives us to talk with our neighbors is our concern for them. We don't just look at those that we are associated with, know, care for, and interact with on a regular basis and just think, ah, I'm pretty glad God saved me. Tough for you. Our hearts are are drawn. The Spirit moves us. Our love for the Lord and our compassion for those that are around us. And that's what's, what's driving Paul in, in Damascus as he goes in. And he no longer is under the commission of the high chief priest, but he's under the commission of the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this same thing years later when he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul is preaching the gospel there as well. Now, if we see when we turn to Galatians chapter 1 that what we read here is one of the things where it's, it's important that we read all of Scripture. So we're reading through, and, and, and it's like this quick jump. So we go from Damascus, verse 26, and, and when he had come to Jerusalem, you know, you know when, he make, when he makes the trip to Jerusalem, it almost seems like, oh, you know, he just walked right on out of Damascus and made his way to Jerusalem. But when we turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, we see that in fact it's been three years that Paul has been laboring, planting churches, doing all this. Then he comes to Jerusalem. 
Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the, the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only, they only were hearing it said, he used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So it's three years later, and the folks are hearing this. The one who who sought to destroy the church, now he is, by God's grace, being used to build it. But yet, we read that there's still a little bit of fear, which makes sense. I mean, it was just a few years ago. These folks were probably remembering family members, friends, whom, whom Paul had helped to have arrested, persecuted, to be kicked out of the synagogues, excommunicated. Perhaps they remembered that it was Saul who held the cloaks at the martyrdom of Stephen. These things are, are, are flowing through their mind. I think, well, it's been three years, but, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe this is like long-term undercover work where he's coming through to, to find out everybody in the church so that then he might rise up and say, ha, I've got them all. I've rooted them out. I know who they are. So there's some fears. There's some doubts amongst the, the, the Christians there in, in Jerusalem. They're doubting if he is truly, as we see in verse 26, is he truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then we read of Barnabas who comes forward and, and the Spirit uses to testify, yes. Yes, the Lord truly has done these things. Paul, who's here, it is God working. He truly was one who once was attacking the church and now the Lord is using to build it. Let us praise God for that great truth, brothers and sisters. So it is Barnabas who comes in and helps speaking these things. And Paul comes right in and he preaches boldly in Jerusalem. Now going into Damascus was one thing. He's going to these synagogues, but now he's in Jerusalem. This is, this is where he was. This is where all his connections are, all his friendships and, and everything that he had helped to support and build and the destruction of the church. And this is the epicenter of it in Jerusalem. And he's going and he's boldly preaching Christ in Jerusalem. He's preaching the name of the Lord. And, and he does something that we saw not long ago, though time-wise it was a little longer ago. You remember what got Stephen in hot water were these Hellenists who came to him. And the Hellenists were, were attacking Stephen because they saw how the, the Lord was, was using him. And great fruit was coming out of his diaconal work that he was doing. And, and he was pointing to Christ and sharing the gospel with all of his neighbors there. Everyone around him in Jerusalem, the Spirit was using it in a, in a mighty way. Multitudes were coming to faith. The Hellenists were were incredibly aggravated and it was the Hellenists that were silenced by Stephen as the Spirit worked through him. And these Hellenists are the very ones that now seek to try to silence Paul. 
He disputes with them, and under the power of the Spirit, he silences them as well. And even, you can imagine a greater way. For now, it's, it's kind of one of their own. I mean, in some sense, what we'll see in a moment, I mean, Paul had to have been seen as a great traitor amongst these religious leaders. The anger towards him must have been great. But we see one thing. Paul's going around. We see it in Damascus and we see it in Jerusalem. I think one thing that, that's not explicitly stated here, but we see it. Paul's going around amongst all those that he was with and participated in the work of destroying the church. And now he's going back to these places and he's making it very clear, I was wrong. What we did was wrong. Jesus is Christ. And then he boldly preached the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. So you see, he's, he's, he's repented to the Lord for what he's done, and now he's, he's actually putting into action uh, this repentance as he's going. Again, we don't have these exact words given to us, but we're just looking at what's happening. He, he's, he's, he's seeking to how he can, humanly speaking, put right what he destroyed. To fix the things that he messed up. He's doing what many of us find hard to do, which is to accept the consequences of our failures and sins and then by God's grace to seek to rectify them. We see also the importance from Damascus to Jerusalem here. It's a span of of several years, but we see the importance in, that gospel preaching has. And I know a preacher saying that can come across the wrong way. So I'm not saying the importance of preachers. The importance of gospel preaching that the Spirit uses. Paul could have gone throughout Damascus. He could have gone throughout Jerusalem and done many different things. But he's primarily seeking to preach the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the reality, the truth, the offer of forgiveness of sins in him. That's what's driving this, this preaching. And we'll spend a few minutes looking at what happens, the fallout from that. Paul is preaching and it brings about plotting. Opposition to Paul's preaching of the gospel happens in both Damascus and Jerusalem. As Paul is preaching by God's grace, he is silencing his opponents. His opponents of the gospel are not happy. What do we see? What is recorded in both Damascus and Jerusalem? Those who were opposing Paul, they weren't just irritated. They didn't just want to cancel Paul. They didn't just want Paul's social media handles to be taken away. They didn't just want, want Paul to lose the ability to interact. They wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. It isn't just that they wanted him dead. They were putting plots. They were putting in action, plans to actually kill him. It's hard for us to grasp that living now and here in the United States. Maybe perhaps some of our brethren around the world can. But they want to kill Paul. They're plotting on how to do this, how to destroy him. This traitor, as they see it, to their faith, their cause. Traitor to the temple, traitor to the system. 
This once up-and-coming promising Pharisee is now the enemy. The spirit of Antichrist among the religious leaders goes into overdrive to silence Paul. Because the spirit is using him in a mighty way. And opposition to the preaching of the gospel continues to happen uh, today. I mean, what Paul faced, the church has always faced, and, and we even face these satanic attempts. To silence the church's witness. That's what Satan wants. He just wants a, he, he wants an ignorant, bumbling, silly, silent church. An ineffective, one that does not witness Christ by the power of the Spirit boldly and mightily. You know, we can look at this and think, well, you know, maybe I'll date myself with with this saying. But uh, you read it, and you're like, yeah, you know, haters gonna hate. I get it. You know? Of course, they're going to not like Paul. I mean, why would they? You know, they don't like anybody that's got some renown or recognition or people are looking to. That's why they didn't like Jesus, right? I mean, all these people were looking to Jesus. And, and they were thinking, we, we don't want you looking to Jesus. You need to be looking at us. These haters. Hating on Paul. But, but all faithful gospel witnesses is truly and utterly hated by the spiritual forces of evil that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6. Again, it's not something new. It's not something that should catch us off guard. It's it's reality of spiritual warfare. But in the midst of that, we see the plotting that's happening here. May we not be weighed down. May we not be fearful, dear saints. Because yes, there is spiritual warfare. Yes, the principalities of the air, the powers of darkness, Satan himself, the demonic. Yes, they want nothing more to influence and drive and push the spirit of Antichrist to silence the witness of the church. They plot. They do all these things. They stir up and, and they move forward even the movements of the, the secular world and the pagan world and all of this. And then we're reminded of Psalm 2. God laughs. Satan is not on God's level. God laughs at him. Even the the massive conspiracies and plotting of history that are seeking to silence the gospel. God laughs at these things. He says, kiss the hand of a son. We don't have to be fearful because of our king. Because he holds us securely. Because he is in control of all. So there's this preaching that drives this plotting, and the plotting is seeking to put into place persecution. This persecution is directed towards Paul because he's he's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching it boldly, unashamedly, and the Spirit is bringing fruit in that preaching. Now, we do see something interesting here. I don't know, maybe you've read stories that there was a time period... Uh, early in the church, where martyrdom was, it became, I don't want to say, uh, it'd, be, it'd be wrong to go too far to say that it was trendy, but, but folks 
wanted to die for Christ so bad that there are stories where the Romans write about these, these crazy zealots that, that they will just do anything to be killed by us. They even You can read records of, of Christians doing kind of silly things so that they might be martyred. But we don't see that here in the early church. We see Paul and, and the other Christians, they have a little bit wiser of an understanding. And their, their thought is not, you know, Paul, everyone's out to get you. You're in Jerusalem. You're in the, the hotbed, the seat of power, the religious powers. Uh, they're coming for you. So what we're going to do is we're not just going to push you out into the front and say, hey, it was wonderful knowing you, but it's going to make a great story when we tell it about how you're martyred like our brother Stephen. Instead, they think, you know, it's okay to run away and fight another day. Uh, We can let you go preach the gospel somewhere else. And they do that. Damascus, he's let out. They they get him out uh, as as they, uh, they rush him through the... Uh, lowering him in a basket out of the wall of the city. And then in Jerusalem, too, they spirit him away so that they might, they might get him to a safe place, Caesarea, and off to, to Tarsus because, because they desire to see this, this preaching ministry continue to go forth. And, and humanly speaking, they don't want to see the proclamation of the gospel, the witness of Christ, to be silenced. Now, in all this, Paul, Paul's, Paul was told by Christ. Remember, not too long ago, Jesus said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to let him know about the suffering that's coming his way. And then Paul even talks later, and it's recorded in the scriptures, that he understood this suffering that he had. And this it was part of, of his life that he had to deal with, the, the calling that he had, had been giving. And, and this persecution, this opposition is part of that. In fact, if we turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, we get a, a, a recounting that Paul himself gives. Now, he's, he's interacting here, starting in verse 23 is where I'm going to start. But uh, he talks about his sufferings, and, and he's dealing with some, some false teachers and who are very haughty and think very highly of themselves. So he's coming in with some hyperbole, and he's like, oh, oh, you are this great mighty teacher and, and servant of Christ who have done all these things and, and you've sacrificed and we should, why don't you just, let me tell you about what, what the Lord has done and put me through. And then he, he goes into this list of, up to this point of how God had brought him through the things that he had suffered in opposition as those who come against his preaching of the gospel, but he suffered willingly for Christ, starting in, in verse 23. Let's start there. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure 
on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And he goes on. You know, where on that list would you have said, I'm out, I'm done. God, thank you for the opportunity to serve you. I've done my portion. I got I to gotta check out. I would have checked out pretty early on, probably, to be honest. But he stays in there because of his great love for his Savior, his compassion for the lost. And then he even ends it with, in the midst of all of that, what is the one thing that he feels the weight of? His constant concern for the church. Not necessarily for his suffering, but his concern for what the church, his fellow brethren, are going through. Even as you read in, in the Pauline epistles, how he's constantly talking about how he's praying for the churches and the brethren because they're on his heart. He's concerned for them. Well, persecution's uh, something that was clearly directed at Paul in the early church and, and sadly has, has continued throughout the history of the church. It's something that's directed towards Christians even today when there is a faithful witness for Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's one of those things where we feel a little empty when we think about it because God has, has blessed us in, in our land and time for several hundred years of peace, which is almost unknown in the history of the church, in the history of the world. So perhaps maybe the first thing we could do is simply to stop and, and realize this reality does apply in the world some of our brothers and sisters and pray for them and pray as the scriptures talk about when we don't know what to pray and ask the spirit may the spirit help us to pray because we don't know what it's like to truly really face real persecution we hear stories maybe a few of us go and spend time amongst others who are persecuted and can testify to it but to know day in and day out what true persecution is it's hard for us to grasp but it's so important that we pray for the brethren. And then I think it's important that we don't make the mistake of saying, well, we've had such a blessing for so long and so many generations that it is unfathomable to think that it could ever happen here. It's like famous last words. Now is the time perhaps that the church should be. Not perhaps let's just say now is the time for the church to cry out to God and ask that he might be merciful. And continue to protect us though we do not deserve it. And continue to keep us from the persecution that seems to be coming. Perhaps as parents and grandparents, whether those are biological or, or spiritual, perhaps our children and grandchildren, those whom in Titus 2 situations we've had the ability to care for, perhaps their future is enough to drive us to our knees and crying out to the Lord. That he might do these things and protect and renew that we do not deserve. But again, we shouldn't live anxious persecution. Just as we shouldn't live, as I mentioned, anxious of the plotting of the, the spiritual forces of evil that are described in Ephesians 6. We shouldn't live anxious of persecution as well. So one thing that's amazed me is I've gotten to know pastors in other lands that are under persecution, 
I expected always the number one thing that they would ask me to pray for them is the persecution that they are facing. And yet the number one thing that they consistently pray for is what we all should be praying for, and that is God's growth and grace in our lives and the lives of the church. They don't live anxious, I think, because they know in a greater way than we do what it is to live in full reliance upon Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, our king, our defender. Even as Paul went forth and we saw, even in the face of opposition, the plotting, the persecution, he continued to preach the gospel boldly because he knew he was secure in Christ. That every moment was under Christ's control and that when Christ was ready, he would be brought to him and that would be a joyous thing. May we live the same way by God's grace. So as we look at this passage, the preaching, the plotting, the persecution, may we remember that God gives his people a love for him and compassion towards the lost that overcomes all opposition that we see and face by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that in the midst of all things, particularly as we've seen here, the, the, what can be scary re- working out of plotting of those who would seek to silence the witness Christ and the preaching of this gospel. Lord, in all of this, we ask that you would would strengthen us, that you would calm any anxiousness that we may have, that you would, would give us hearts set upon Christ, that our joy would be rooted in him, whether we find ourselves at the table of feasting, Lord, upon the bed of mourning, or even under the pressures of of trials and challenges and even persecution. Lord, in the midst of all this, we ask that you would keep and bless us for your glory and the benefit of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.